Writing starts with an idea. But, as you can imagine, not all ideas and expressions are perfect the first go-around. Sometimes, when an issue is so complex and so multifaceted and so... eccentric, the writing process can become daunting. So, for the first episode of the show, I had to find the perfect example of a piece of writing that encompassed Mm -hmm. intricacy and complication and drama. And I sifted through hundreds, thousands of documents. Wait. But then there was one. Oh, yeah. Definitely this one. Joseph N. Melchioni. Today, we're going to talk with Joe and discuss his writing process, featuring a case that will live on in infamy. From Lois Law Firm in Paramus, New Jersey, I'm Addison O'Donnell, and this is First Draft. Joe? Yes? You, you have a few minutes to talk? Oh, sure, of course. Good, good. I'm here, I'm here to talk about your case, the one, the one you wrote the rebuttal for. Let's call the claimant uh, Carmen Gap. Have you ever, have you ever seen Mr. Gap? <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I, I've had the pleasure. Can you describe him? Early 40s, slender, darker hair, light eyes. All right, and from what I understand in this case, Mr. Gap was a thespian. Yes, yes, an actor. Mm, yeah, he went to the island of Java to explore the nation's theater history and perform for the citizenry back in 2013. That is correct, yes. Mm. So he went with his theater troupe, where he, he was an actor, and on the trip, he suffered from cholera. Well, he thinks he suffered from cholera. He returned to America. He saw a doctor who actually diagnosed him with jet lag. Jet lag? Yes, jet lag. But the operative fact here, though, was that this was his last acting gig. After his performances in Java, he was out of a job when he returned home. So he went to a doctor and alleged that he had cholera. And then he alleged that it was work-related. And that, when he filed the workers' compensation claim. So wait, he went to Java, thought he developed cholera, came back home without a job, and then filed a workers' comp claim for jet lag? Well, sort of. He came into the court with no attorney, and yet he provided hundreds upon hundreds of pages of documents and what he considered to be medical evidence. That's debatable. Oh, my. You see, what happened is he saw approximately 60 doctors within a two-year period. And as he went to each of these doctors, he claimed that he had cholera. He was seeking out that diagnosis. But interestingly, not one doctor could find any evidence that he had actually contracted cholera. And furthermore, those doctors couldn't find that whatever the claimant was, whatever symptoms the claimant was complaining about was even more related. So, so then what's the deal? Why was he in court in the first place? Well, that's exactly what I argued to the judge. And at the time, the judge was inclined to kind of rule in my favor and dismiss the case, but that's when the claimant found someone who gave him kind of the diagnosis he was looking for. Hmm. 
Well, what diagnosis was he looking for? It turns out he was looking for any way to kind of receive a diagnosis that would lead to cholera. In this case, it was, believe it or not, a disease called leaky gut syndrome. This, it's just, yeah, it sounds crazy. It's a syndrome without any general medical recognition in the Western world. But the judge entertained it. He allowed it. You know, when we're working under legal constraints, the law, the presumptions fall in favor of the claimant. So in this case, uh, the claimant presented medical evidence and the judge just allowed the evidence in so that the record could be developed. And all of this started from cholera. Jet lag. Jet lag. It all started from jet lag. Out of the 60 doctors that he saw over the course of two years, he found one in Iowa who determined he had this leaky gut syndrome because uh, because of having cholera. And there was no proof that he even had cholera in the first place. He would have needed dioxycycline for that two years ago. And signs and symptoms of cholera are, are unmistakable. So the only true positive way to conclusively prove that he had contracted cholera on this trip was to test a stool sample to prove that maybe he had leaky gut syndrome that maybe led to cholera. It's a circuitous way to get to the end result, but in this case, it seemingly worked at first. And, and he never got a sample tested? No, never. He never did, because remember, he only had jet lag. you got to keep reminding yourself of that. He only had jet lag. So before we continue here, th- this guy was an actor. Apparently. I would argue probably not a good one. He lived in New York City. He had an apartment that was provided to him by the theater troupe he worked for. And his job basically was to perform and educate audiences abroad. And, you know, his room and board were part and parcel to his job. And it was part of his salary. And he claimed to have cholera in Java from a contaminated well, I assume? Well, you know, nothing suggests that he even drank contaminated water. Everyone on the trip had bottled water. And they all stayed at a Marriott. So I doubt that there was any contaminated water involved. Uh, and specifically because the symptoms of cholera are unmissable. They're unmistakable. They can't be confused with anything else. However, it's unknown. That didn't stop him from arguing, though. So the judge entertained the medical report, which means depositions happen next, then the trial. Right. And we had a lot to do in the meantime. We issued subpoenas to virtually all the doctors to help develop the record. We didn't only want half of those medical reports to be considered by the judge, especially in a case like this. We wanted the judge to have a full 30,000-mile view of this case so that the judge could see exactly what was going on here. And from what I know, you found something that could help your defense? Well, in my research and looking through the copious documents, I I found this email, an email that was sent by the claimant to a doctor in Chicago. And he wrote something to the effect of, in order to get workers' compensation, I need one doctor to find that this, whatever it is, is related to my trip to Java. Listen, it was ludicrous. He was doctor shopping, clearly. And he was diagnosed with a million things other, uh, other than jet lag and beyond jet lag. He had allegedly had prostate cancer. He had insomnia. He had erectile dysfunction. You name it. He kept going to the doctors till he got the, do- the diagnosis he wanted. At least that's what he was planning to do. That's what he was trying to do. All right, so was there a response to that email? Oh, there was a response. The doctor said he wanted to terminate the doctor-patient relationship. It was the doctor's opinion that he couldn't in good conscience continue to treat this claimant and that there was nothing more that he could do for him. 
because he had exhausted all possibilities. And just because the claimant was unhappy with the diagnosis doesn't mean, uh, didn't mean that he had any more to offer the claimant. So he basically terminated the um, patient-doctor relationship. All right. So, so you mentioned he did not have an attorney. Right. His, his argument from the beginning was that he couldn't hire an attorney because no one could properly advocate for his case. You know, in other words, no one could help him because there's not another person on the planet that could truly understand his condition like he did. It's, you gotta, you gotta kind of bend reality to understand the, the thought process here. So, uh, being that every single doctor diagnosed him with something different, um, just proves that the claimant's symptoms were amorphous. So it, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So the trial, how did that go? Well, you know, it was interesting. The trial went basically how you'd expect it to go. But there's something I do need to, to mention here. Mr. Gap was one of the most difficult adversaries I've ever had to face. It wasn't the legal acumen. It wasn't the trial advocacy skills. The difficulty here was because this person, this claimant, knew his alleged condition so well and so convincingly that I could have spent thousands of hours researching every medical condition in the world, and I still wouldn't be able to combat the actual knowledge. So, you know, the claimant was so well-versed that the judge could not dare challenge him on his knowledge, which was delusional about his condition. Ultimately, we won the trial because of legal presumptions and burdens of proof and legal stuff like that. But the battle, of course, was not over. It wasn't over. It never is. A story like this doesn't just end there. Come on. The claimant appealed. And in the claimant's appeal, there were handwritten notes and arrows and attachments and unsubstantiated medical, quote-unquote, medical reports and, and, and journal documents. Everything was highlighted and annotated and cross-referenced and crossed out. and it, it was scary. It was truly scary. Explosive. That's how I describe it. It was explosive. I mean, I can only imagine. I read your response, I read his appeal, and it, it was wild. It was truly, truly wild. So how do you start your writing process generally, aside from this case? You know, I have such a high caseload. Generally, uh, I just throw things together. I mean, I make a first draft, I identify the procedure, the facts, the substance, and I try to tell a story to the best I can. You know, I have a history, and I have an educational history in writing. Um, so usually there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. But this was a little different. Uh, you know, I was constrained by the law to only eight pages. And there was so much here and so much I wanted to say. I kept asking myself, how, how do I fit all of my arguments and all of the applicable law into eight pages? Uh, and in the beginning, it just came out as a stream of consciousness. And every step along the way, I asked, how do I keep certain things in and what do I take out? Uh, I had to touch on every defense. I felt that was really important, but um, there were some other circumstantial facts I needed. I felt needed to be part of this story. So the hardest balance was deciding what to leave in and what to cut. And I was afraid that if I didn't mention one fact, it would take away from the argument. But if I didn't mention one other circumstantial piece of evidence, it would also take away from my overall argument. So trust me, it was, it was a difficult process, probably one of the most difficult pieces of writing I've ever had to create. So what did you ultimately leave in? Well, that's where this gets interesting. I mean, I'm a, I'm a law guy, you know. It's about how the facts of the case overlap with the existing law. But this was a little different. There was so much here. And it all, to me, came down to the email. The email between the doctor in Chicago and Mr. Gaff himself. 
uh, I felt like that information needed to be included. You know, sometimes your eyes are drawn to things and it just seems to be an aha moment. And here, I believed, I strongly believe that the emails were definitely persuasive, supremely persuasive, because they were an indication as to Mr. Gap's motive. In my entire life, I've never heard a doctor say something like, I cannot in good conscience continue along this path with you. I've never heard a doctor say something like that. So in the end, I felt it was the claimant's own words that would be more powerful and probative evidence than my own. Wow. Wow. Just wow. How did how did you feel in writing your first draft? You know, truthfully, quite conflicted. You know, I know we had strong arguments. I strongly believed that I had a strong case and that we had a strong defense. It was just, how do I convince the judge? How do I convince the judge of that? And we had all this evidence to support our arguments. But uh, at the end, uh, as I was writing, uh, I believe it was William Faulkner who said it best. Sometimes you just got to kill your darlings. Kill your darlings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's certainly how I felt. And in the end, we ultimately won. Um, was I 100% happy with the result? No. But at the end, uh, I guess I could look back and say, we accomplished our goal. I served my client's needs. I properly defended the case. And I feel that I did it in a way that was compelling, but also truthful. So we could always say, I wish I could do more, but, you know, I wish I could do more. Well, for a piece that was allegedly written in stream of consciousness, this is some great work. Right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Do you have any final thoughts on this case? You know, uh, I'm, I'm almost 40 years old, and i got to say I've done a lot of writing in my life. And, and this, this brief, this case, certainly uh, allowed me to create probably the most dense and concentrated piece of writing I've ever written. Uh, but again, uh, all is well that ends well, and we just have no choice but to pick up and move on to the next day. That's just the nature of the beast. That's the nature of our business. Joe, it was great to talk to you about this one. This story was very vivid, and you helped me understand better how you completed your first draft. Absolutely, anytime. Pleasure was all mine. Thanks a lot. Take care. been reflecting on the advice that Joe gave me. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's a story you've got to tell. And when there's a page or word limit, you've got to repeatedly ask every step of the way the following question. If I don't mention this fact, will it take away from the argument? And if you don't need it, you've got to kill your darlings. Thanks for listening. Until next time, good luck on your first draft.